page 404 in the Pew Bible, you'll find Nehemiah, if you, chapter 8, our scripture reading. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn there um, and use our copy. Uh, but we are in Nehemiah, chapter 8, continuing our series there. I did mention last week, maybe got some of you too excited, and now you're wondering why I'm up here, because I mentioned about our intern summer series, and um, it starts next week, so... Um, we will continue Nehemiah tonight, and Cliff, the Lord willing, on their way back tomorrow, uh, will begin his series looking at the I Am sayings in, gospel, in the Gospel of John. Uh, so last time we, we were looking at the start of, of the holidays. You'll remember the end of chapter 7 gave us this note that uh, it was the beginning of the seventh month, and that was the start of the holiday season for Israel. That's when all of their best festivals were held. Uh, and one of those feasts, the best of the feasts, was the Feast of uh, Booths, or it goes by a number of names. We'll get there momentarily. That's what we're considering tonight, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills! And bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it's written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. As far as the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of witnessing uh, the change in behavior and demeanor of a close friend or a family member where one day, seemingly out of nowhere, they're just really smiley. It's like there's a spring in their step. Um, Maybe they're always laughing or they seem to be semi-distracted. Anytime you try to engage them in conversation and they're just kind of looking up in the, to the sky with this wistful smile. And you know what that means. It means they met someone, right? And that's what you say, oh, you must have met someone. You're enamored. You're smitten. Uh, maybe you know that feeling firsthand and you've experienced it yourself. The feeling that everything is going to be okay. In fact, everything is great. Because I found the one. I found the one. I want to suggest to you that's, that's the feeling that Israel has right now. That explains their, their mood in 
Nehemiah chapter 8. You remember the book began with the country in shambles. Wall was, the city walls were destroyed. The people were, who were there were ashamed to be there. Uh, they were despondent. Um, uh, Elder Vanderband made a reference to a line from Pilgrim's Progress in his uh, prayer about the slew of despond. That, that's Israel at this time. They're, they're in, in the pit. And um, we see, though, now they've turned a corner, haven't they? The wall's been completed. And last week in our sermon, we saw that they were exhorted on the first day of the seventh month, the beginning of the holiday season, what, to find their strength, their refuge, their hope in the joy of the Lord, in the good pleasure of God to save them. You remember that verse? Verse um, 10 of earlier on in the chapter. Uh, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then we read in verse 12, indeed, the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the words that had been explained to them, had been preached to them. Remember, we, we saw that Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites went around. They did gospel preaching to the people. The law had been read, and the people were weeping because of how they had broken that law. But then they said, why are you weeping? Today's a day of rejoicing. You're sad. God isn't sad, though. It was his pleasure. It was his joy to save you. Let that be your strength. Let that be your anchor. Let that be your stronghold. And the people rejoiced. They'd been saved. They've turned a corner. Now they're, well, everything's changed for them. They're happy. They're joyful. We see in verse 17 of tonight's text that the joy is continuing on. There was very great rejoicing. Why are they so happy? Why are they so joyful? I think the reason that this chapter gives is that Israel's joy is in the fact that they found the one. Uh, maybe I should say they refound the one. What is so beautiful about this chapter in Israel's history is that they are recovering a theocentric way of living. What do I mean by that? A theocentric way of living. They are recovering what it means to put God at the center of their lives. And when you do that, friends, you'll be as joyful as Israel. When you find the one... Right? Isn't that what the great poet says in our Old Testament? I found the one whom my soul loves. Well, for the Christian, we know our souls love the Lord. And he loves us. And so when we find the one, when we make him the center, we will have this joy as well. John Newton once said, God who formed the soul originally for himself has given it such a vast capacity that nothing short of himself can satisfy its desires. God made the soul for himself, and he says the only thing that's going to make that soul happy or satisfied is me. And so that's what Israel is, is learning. The people are learning a lesson, and we're also going to see that they will later forget this lesson. But they learn it here, and we need to learn it as well so that we don't forget it. And the lesson is simply this. That the source of all of our rest, the source of all of our satisfaction, indeed the source of our salvation, is God and God alone. And we want him not for the gifts that he gives, 
We want him for himself, for he is the ultimate gift. Israel has put him at the center. They've rediscovered a theocentric way of life. That's something perhaps some of us even tonight need to rediscover. Well, how do they do this? Well, we see that their theocentricism, if I could put it that way, their God-centeredness, is seen first in the deep dive that they take into the Word of God, the deep dive into God's Word. That's the first thing tonight, a deep dive into God's Word. We're picking up right where we left off and uh, last time, and as I've said, chapter 7 ended with this reminder that we're in the seventh month, and that's a time for rejoicing and for celebrating and for worshiping and for feasting. Uh, that's when they had the Feast of Booths, the Day of Atonement. That's when uh, Jubilee was announced. It's all during this time. And um, that was the time marker we're given at the end of chapter 7. Notice now in our passage, verse 13, we're given another time marker. Now we're told it's the second day. There was a day-long conference prior. Remember where Ezra, they built a tower pulpit for him? And uh, he got up and he read the law for some five, six hours. And the people wept, and then the, the law was applied to them and preached to them. The gospel was preached, and they rejoiced. They had a whole day of hearing God's word, but their study now of that word is not done. It continues on to the second day. Right? On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe. Why? In order to study the words of the law. One commentator said that what took place the first day was extensive, and what now takes place on the second day is intensive. It's intense. It's, a, it's sort of like a um, small group Bible study. The heads of the homes have, have sought out uh, the, the great teacher Ezra, the biblical scholar Ezra, to give them a, a, a more concentrated Bible study. And I want, to, want you to notice why it is that it is these men in particular who are doing this, why they are taking extra time to study. And that's because in God's design, it is the responsibility of the head of the house to teach the rest of the house how they should walk in the way of the Lord. And how can they do that if they don't know what the way of the Lord is? Uh, we learned a couple of things here, at least, at least two things. First, it, it, what I mean here, I'm, I'm talking about this fact that they're having this Bible study, this small group study with Ezra. We learned at least two things here. First is this. Church is not enough. And I even felt weird saying that as a, as a minister in the Reformed context. And there's other Reformed ministers in this room tonight. Um, I love the church. I, I love corporate worship. And I think worship is the most important thing we do in life. But just because corporate worship and what goes on at church is the primary means of our spiritual growth does not mean it's the only means of our spiritual growth. And I would say just because it's the primary does not mean it is enough. Church is not enough. Um, if, if the only time you open up your Bible is for 30 minutes every, other Sunday, or every Sunday, that is not enough uh, for the needs of your soul. That's not going to cut it. Your needs are too great, and God's word is too good for you to think that 30 minutes will be enough for you to understand all that God is trying to teach you. And so in a large gathering like we have tonight in this kind of corporate setting, we can't glean all that we need to glean from God's word. 
Private devotions are critical. Family worship, family devotions are critical. Bible studies, small groups, these things are all necessary for us to really dive into the riches of God's word. And so what are you doing to do that? Uh, Notice again, we saw this last time too, um, but notice again that it is not that the leaders are telling the people, come and sit down and let us teach you. It is the people seeking out the leader saying, would you please teach us? Right? The heads of the fathers, uh, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people came to Ezra in order to study. Just like last time, they said, Ezra, teach for us in the public assembly. Now they're saying, give us a little something more. They seek him out. Are you seeking opportunities to understand God's word beyond that broad assembly that we call church? What, what books are you reading? Uh, do you listen to sermons on your commute or, may, or maybe some good Christian podcasts? Do you have a friend that you can meet with maybe once a month and, and talk about life and talk about what you each are reading God's word and, and strengthen each other that way and challenge each other? I'll, I'll say as simply as this. You need what well, we need. I'm including myself. We need more, not less Bible in our lives. We need more, not less, Bible in our lives. And that's what we see here. They have a days-long conference. Ezra preaches the entire day. And there is no sense of, well, now we're good for a while. Like, I stored up my Bible reading, my Bible study, and I can, I can live off this for a while. The next day, they say, give us more. We need more. Christian does the same thing because we understand we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I need your words more, not less of them. Church isn't going to cut it. You need to be in your Bible every day. We learn that here. A second thing that we learn, as I alluded to already, is the particular role that fathers play in training up and leading their entire families in this endeavor. It's the head of the house who is responsible for um, the spiritual health of the house. You know, what's happening in Nehemiah 8 is the practical way in which Deuteronomy 6 can be um, obeyed and followed. You, you remember Deuteronomy 6, these words I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the way, when you lie down and when you rise. What, what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy is that, that the, the word of God, his law and, and, and his, his will for our lives, that should just be part of what you're talking about as a family. Well, how can you do that, dads, if you don't know what God's word says or what God's will is? Right? There needs to be this, this, this well of, of biblical knowledge from which you can draw upon to lead your family. The work that the dads are doing with Rabbi Ezra is training them to fulfill that command in Deuteronomy 6. So, fathers, a particular charge to you, which was easier for me to make five years ago before I was one. But here we are. What are you doing to dive deeply into God's word so that you can share what you have learned with your family? Are you making a concerted effort to pay the most attention on Sunday? So that you can go back afterwards and share what you've learned with your family. Did you hear what I said? I, I, really, I really mean this and I really believe it. That when families come and they sit in the pew, the person who should be paying attention the most is the dad. And sadly, 
men, and I, I get this. This is I'm not I'm not condemning you. I, I, I sympathize with you. A lot of you have have tough jobs. You, you work long hours. In church, even though you don't want it to be, ends up being a good place to take a nap. I get it. I get it. You don't, you're not trying to, and it, you drift off, and yet fight that. Fight that because, because in God's design, what you glean on Sundays is what you can use then Monday through Saturday for the rest of, the year, for the rest of your family. You should be paying the most attention in the, on Sunday as far as your family is concerned. Are you giving extra time uh, or extra study of the word? Are you giving most of your time to extra study of the word? Are you making an effort to know the Bible as best as you can so that your wife and kids can know it better? Uh, look at God's design here in the nation. It's not just up to Ezra and the Levites to teach the people. Wouldn't that be um, sort of a, a relief for us dads if they said, and all you need to do is bring all your family to Ezra and the Levites and they'll take care of the spiritual well-being of your kids. No, it's you come, we'll teach you, so you teach them. Their well-being is, is on the fathers. That's their responsibility. So the main way that the nation grows in the understanding of the word is not in these gigantic assemblies where Ezra and the Levites are speaking. It's through instruction around the dinner table. It's when they're rising, when they're walking, it's when they're Sitting down. It's when the fathers would open up the book and say, let me share with you what I know about this passage. Let me show you God's way and let's walk in it together. They take a deep dive into God's word in order that the rest of the nation can too. And so men, study your Bibles so that your wives can know theirs. Study your Bible so that your kids can know theirs. Prioritize this calling from God that you are the one to lead your family in a deep study of the scriptures. Now, what happens in our text? They, they take a deep dive of the scriptures, and what do they discover there? Their deep dive in the word of God uncovers a forgotten feast. That's the second thing tonight. A deep dive reveals a forgotten feast Recovering uh, this, this worshipful celebration of the Feast of Booths is another way in which we see the God-centeredness in the people at this time. They want God's word and they want God's worship. And so they, they learn that there's this feast that they had forgotten about or at least had not been, um, had not been celebrating properly. And that is what is known as the Feast of Booths. This verse 14. They found it written in the law of the Lord, commanded, uh, the, the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths um, or temporary shelters during the feast on the seventh month. So that's why it's called the Feast of Booths because they were to dwell in these, these little tents. Uh, what is the Feast of Booths? Well, it's one of the three Hagim uh, that is the pilgrimage feast, one of the three times where the entire nation, even when they were, um, uh, um, even when they were spread out um, over uh, the, 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 the various territories in the Middle East, would take a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, to the capital city, to celebrate these three uh, feasts. Um, and Deuteronomy 16, verses 15 and 17 Uh, Give us that rule. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord 
at the place he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would be um, Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. Um, So those are the three feasts. This is one of those three times where uh, the people took a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate. And um, it went by a number of names, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents. It all had to do with the the booths they were in. It was also known as the Feast of Ingathering because it was a a harvest feast. It had a lot of good food, as we'll see. Um, There are a number of places in the Bible where we read instructions, but I want um, to imagine that Ezra might have been teaching from Leviticus. So let's turn there. Turn with me to Leviticus 23 and verse 33. And we're going to see, try to, try to um, narrow, narrow in some of the main points of this feast, like what it was all about and why they celebrated it. So Leviticus 23:33. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Speak to the people of Israel, saying, "On the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days." So remember, we're on the second day of the month right now. So it's coming up in about two weeks. We're going to have this feast. That's what they're reading with Ezra in their Bible study. On the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly You shall not do any ordinary work. And then we skip down to verse 39. We continue to read. Then on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Well, we can draw from this passage that the feast was meant to teach the people at least three things. That is that the rest and the satisfaction and the salvation that they all need so desperately are found in God and in God alone. Rest, satisfaction, and salvation are in him. First, rest. It's a time to cease from labors. Beyond the normal rhythm of, of Sabbath rest, um, uh, there is, is this call to cease from all ordinary labors on the first day and on the eighth day. And, and actually, I believe, implied in there a rest in the week in between as well. The promised land foreshadowed the, the land of, of glory, the land of rest. And so these feasts were a special time. Uh, for the people to remember that one day labor uh, or one day toiling w- would stop. They could rest from their labors as they dwelt with God in heaven. This is what God promises his people. He promises them rest. He gives his people rest. Second, God gives them 
satisfaction, and he alone can do it. This is truly a feast. This is a time of celebration. Eight days of, of eating food, good food, really good food. As we've said, this is the start of the holiday season. This is essentially a week-long Thanksgiving celebration. Can you imagine having Thanksgiving dinner for seven days in a row? Maybe some of you with your extended family do that uh, two or three days, but this stretches on for, for a week. Uh, and this is why it was known sometimes, the Feast of Booth was known as the Feast. They called it the Feast. Well, which one? Everybody knew. It's the Feast because it was the last of the fall festivals. It was held at the, that time, the agricultural year, somewhere between September and October, when, when grapes and olives and other kinds of things were harvested. It was a time to thank God for all he had provided and to look forward to God providing more in the future. They prayed for a good rainy season at this point. Uh, it was a time to rejoice, to be glad, to be satisfied in the good gifts of God. It was a time to taste and to see that the Lord is good. But most importantly, finally, the Feast of Booths taught them that their salvation came from God alone. Their rest comes from God alone. Their satisfaction from God alone. But their salvation. And here we see the whole twist of this feast. What made it so unique and so special is that it was a camp out. Right? You, you, you went and you... you uh, Pitched a tent and you got to sit out under the stars for a week with your family. That would be a fun feast, a fun festival for a lot of you. Not me. Um, imagine it's like a, a week-long trip up north. And it's not just fun, though. It, it had, a, it had a, a point, didn't it? So that the people wouldn't forget. Why, why were they in, in booths? Well, Leviticus told us that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's a time to hearken back to the salvation of God in delivering them from their slavery, from their captors, from Egypt. And he says, and you remember what happened? Do you remember what it was like between Egypt and the promised land? You were camping out. You were backpacking. You had no home, no permanent city. No, you, 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 you made these makeshift teepees, <laughs> these lean-tos, and you dwelt there. And now that you're in the promised land, I don't want you to forget how you got there. It was me. I am your salvation, God says. I'm the one who saved you and who sustained you in the wilderness. And so when they're sitting pretty in the promised land, lest they think they're the ones who brought themselves there, the Feast of Booths, taught them of the salvation that comes from God alone. And recovering this forgotten feast was a way of ensuring that the people did not forget themselves what God had done. Sadly, it sounds like they had forgotten, doesn't it? If you look at verse 15, uh, 17 of our text, back to, to Nehemiah. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to this day, the people of Israel had not done so. It sounds like they actually never, never celebrated the Feast of Booths. Once they got into the Promised Land under Joshua, they, they never celebrated. That's what it reads like. But that's not accurate. Um, we know for a fact that they did celebrate it under Solomon in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. We read of that. Um, what I think the better way to read this is perhaps that they celebrated the festival, but what's being highlighted is that they did not do so 
in booths, in the, the tents. Okay, so they, they took a week off, they had the vacation time, and they, they had the, the feasting and the eating, but this is not, uh, but they had not done the, uh, the, the, the tabernacling. Um, there's something else, though, probably that, that Nehemiah is doing to be clever here by referencing Joshua. He's showing the connection between the initial arrivals into the promised land and the returning exiles now. Right, verse 17, all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in booze. He's, he's reminding us we're, we're coming back into the land. And then he mentions Joshua, the first people to come into the land. It's almost as though Nehemiah is saying, we have a clean slate here. It's, we're starting over. It's a fresh start. They're restored to God in a way that had not been true since Joshua. Nehemiah is their new leader. He's their new captain. He's their new Joshua. Ezra is the new Moses. But Yahweh is the same and forever God of faithfulness. And Nehemiah is underscoring that here. He's, he's making sure the people, as he even writes this narrative, that people as they read it would be focused and centered on God and God alone. And so the effectiveness of the father's and household leaders' deep study into God's word is immediately evident. They not only learn of the way in which to keep the feast, but they immediately take the steps necessary to do it. We read that in verse 16. So the people went out, and they, they brought them and made booths for themselves. They, they obey immediately. The fathers return into their homes, and now all the people partake in this joyful celebration. There was very great rejoicing. The end of verse 17. A time to reflect on their past deliverance, to rejoice in the hope of future blessing and future restoration as well. This is a God-centered moment. They see all that God is for his people, and they are glad. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. Fast forward to the New Testament, and I want you to do this with me. Turn to John chapter 7. And we see something has changed at the time of the Feast of Booths, John chapter 7. And what we're going to see here is really tragic. We see that they have not forgotten the feast. Uh, they, they have continued to keep it. They're keeping it now hundreds of years later in the time of Jesus in John chapter 7. They're engaged in the ceremony and the ritual. And yet... Why they haven't forgotten to keep the feast, they have forgotten its meaning. They have forgotten what it's all about. They had forgotten what it's pointing to. They had lost that theocentric impulse that marked the people in Nehemiah 8. And I say that because in John 7, the people have the opportunity to do something that they've never been able to do before. And that's actually celebrate the Feast of Booze with God himself right there with them. Jesus is there. Talk about being theocentric. We can put him at the head of the feast with us. But what do they want to do? They want to kill him. Look at chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 7. Uh, verse 2, actually. Now the feast of booths was, was at hand. Okay, that's our time marker. But verse 1 says that the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is, this is the time that we're in here. One in which people are keeping a feast and yet they've forgotten entirely the point of the feast to bring them closer to God. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. And they were saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, 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 no. He's leading the people astray. And for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Okay, so the the Jews are so enraged, they want to kill Jesus. And now nobody even wants to defend him or say that they know him or that maybe they kind of like some of the stuff he's teaching because now that anger, that hatred, that murderous impulse that they have for Jesus maybe will be turned on them. So they're silent. So they're silent. Well, about halfway through the festival, Jesus does something very bold, and he begins teaching in the temple. He takes on that role of Ezra. The law was to be read throughout the time of the Feast of Booths. Now Jesus is the one who's teaching in the temple. But that enrages the people all the more. See this in verse 28. He taught in the temple. And people are upset because, well, they think they know this guy. They know his mom and his dad, Mary and Joseph. He's just an an average Joe. He's just a normal guy. And yet he's saying things. He's teaching with such authority. This is almost as though he's pretending to be the Messiah. Look at verse 27. We know where this man comes from. But when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see what they're saying. We know him. He can't be the Christ. The Christ will be much more mysterious and and marvelous and and exciting than this. But he's just from Nazareth. Anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus proclaimed and he taught in the temple. What does he say? Verse 28. You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know Do you see how far the people have fallen? Nehemiah 8, this beautiful moment of a theocentric people, a God-centered people. John 7, Jesus says, you don't even know God. Not only is he not the center of your life, you don't even know who he is at all. You don't get him at all. You're actually not God's people at all. Because if you would know him, you would know me. And you would accept me. And you would want me. And you would come to me. Because God's people center their lives on him, therefore you would center your lives on me. But they want to kill him. And to make the point most powerfully... Jesus does one more thing later on in the chapter, and we'll close with this. Look at verse 37. Now it's come to the the last day of the feast. On the last day of the feast, it's called the great day. You see that. Some context is probably helpful for what happens next. In the time between Nehemiah and John, certain rituals and traditions had been added to um, how the Feast of Booths was observed. So for the first six days, the people would gather in the temple precinct, and they would fill a golden pitcher up with water from the pool of Siloam. And then they would take that pool to uh, the temple, or take that, that pitcher back to the temple. And when they reached the water gate, remember from Nehemiah 7, that's where the people are gathered. Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah 8, that's where they're gathered for this great festival. It's at the water gate. When they reached there at the temple, the priests would circle the, priests would circle the high platform 
and, and then uh, ascend it, and they would pour the water onto the altars. And it was a way of reminding the people that God not only uh, provided for them shelter on their journey, but he provided them water in the wilderness. But then on the, the last day, the, the great day, uh, they would, would do this uh, seven times. And as they poured out the water, the people watching would recite from Isaiah 55 and verse 1, uh, which says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. With joy, draw water from the well of salvation. Another way of reminding the people this anticipation of the Messiah, the one who will meet all their needs, satisfy their deepest longings. Well, do you see the irony of what's happening? Now we're at the last day, the great day, in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. And the people are, 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 are doing this ritual, looking forward to the Messiah, all the while they have their back turned to the Messiah. He's right there. And they don't want anything to do with them. The feast had become an empty liturgical practice. It's no longer a lively worship that overflowed from hearts that are set on God as their source of rest, as their source of satisfaction, as their source of salvation. Well, they had not forgotten the feast. They had, not, uh, they had even enhanced it by adding this water ritual But they had forgotten what it was all about. So what does Jesus do on the last day? As the people would have been reciting Isaiah 55, 1. Come to the waters, all who are thirsty. What does Jesus do? Verse 37. On that great day, as they're all circling the temple with their water pitcher, crying out from Isaiah 55, Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me. Me. It's that call to center their lives on God again. Jesus reorients their attention back to him, the one they despised, the one they hated, the one they wanted to kill. And he's saying, no, I'm actually your life. I'm I'm actually your rest. I'm actually your satisfaction. I'm your salvation. So come to me. Matthew Henry says, he kind of paraphrases Jesus' words. He says, it's as though Jesus says, if any man desires to be truly and eternally happy, let him apply himself to me and be ruled by me, and I will undertake it to make it so that he is eternally happy. And so, I ask you tonight, I know many of you here, a number of you are visiting, and I'm not sure what your situation is, but I wonder, have you taken up that invitation? Jesus has come to me. Come to me because I'm actually everything you need. You want rest? I've got it. Eternal rest in heaven. You want satisfaction? I meet the deepest need of your soul. How could he not, after all? Think of it. What's our great problem? Sin. Alienation from God. He says, for your sin, I'm a substitute. For your alienation, I'm that mediator who reconciles you to the one that you have offended. Today, some of you here are, are weighed low with a burden of sin and guilt. You might not even share it with anybody. But you know deep down, I am not right with God, and it terrifies you. Let that terror go. Come to Jesus, the one who says, if anyone wants to come to the Father, he must come through me. I'm the way. 
I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm everything you need. Oh, we talked a lot about suffering this morning, didn't we? What Jesus knows about that. In him we have a sympathizing Savior. One who knows what we're going through and he actually prays for us in ways that are better than we could ever pray for ourselves. He's doing that right now for you. What does he... What, what does he possibly lack? Nothing. He has it all. And he's saying, you could have it all if you come to me. Do you see the open hand? Do you see the invitation? Do you hear the call? If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he says, and you'll live. Your whole life will change. You'll be so satisfied, it's like now there's, there's living water flowing out of you. What's that mean? It means your cup will be filled to overflowing. That's what that means. Oh, you're empty today. You're low. It could all be changed if you just come to Jesus. Our problem is sin. And sin makes us not God-centered, right? We're not theocentric, we're work-centric, we're family-centric, we're school-centric, we're self-centric. And we think that if I can just follow this path, I'll finally be happy. If I can just get this job that I want, if I could just get this girl that I want, or if I could just get this boy that I want, if I could just get this thing, I'll be happy. And Jesus says, it's not a thing, it's a person, and I'm the person. Come to me. Jesus is inviting us to find the fulfillment of all our longings, to find peace, hope, joy, and salvation. All we need to do is orient our lives properly and put him at the center. Have you done that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask for a greater desire for your word in our lives, that we would desire to be God-centered, and that means we need to be word-centered people. We need to, to love your word and to study your word, and, and we rejoice knowing that when we do so, we find the gospel, and we've heard that gospel tonight. We learn of Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. He soothes his sorrows and heals his wounds and drives away all of our fears. And he's saying, come to me. Come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I'll give you drink. Come to me and I'll give you life everlasting. Lord, we want to be God-centered people. We want to be Christ-centered people. So work in our hearts. Work of Regeneration, a work of renewal, a work of repentance, a work of returning us to you, that we could say, I have found the one whom my soul loves. Now, Holy Spirit, come and be the after preacher and apply these words unto everlasting life. Amen.